Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, Connie Huck talks to Nina Stibby about her new book, An Almost Perfect Christmas. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode I'm joined by the author of Love Nina, a memoir that was adapted for the BBC and starred Helena Bonham Carter. My guest's critically acclaimed novel Man at the Helm was shortlisted for the Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, to which she wrote a sequel, Paradise Lodge. And she's come now to tell us all about her latest book, An Almost Perfect Christmas, a wry look at Christmas's past, part memoir, part short story and served up with some funny and friendly tips for the festive season. She is the wonderful Nina Stibby. Hi. Hi, Connie. It's great to have you here in our lovely little studio. And you've brought along a number of objects that have influenced and inspired your latest book, which we will be looking at in moments from now. We mentioned your first book, Love Nina, a memoir of your experiences as a nanny in North London. In an almost perfect Christmas, you mostly write again from personal experience. Is that because you've had an extraordinary life that you write from your past or do you just enjoy finding the absurd in the everyday? I do find everyday life very funny and looking back, what I find is things that you think are absolutely normal other people find extraordinary and strange. And so you tell your anecdotes and people say, that can't possibly be true. And I say, surely that's the same for everybody. For instance, the turkey (laughs) Turkey. in the downstairs (laughs) toilet. Yeah, my first object, (laughs) yes. So this is a photo of a downstairs loo. It's got some toilet rolls, sort of not on a toilet roll holder. It's just on the cistern on the top, dangling down. Yeah, and there's some lino there that looks like it's possibly from the 70s. It certainly is. And then there's a pan of spuds on the floor. And then there's a turkey in a roasting dish on the toilet. On the toilet, sitting on the closed Uh, lid. Sitting on the, yes, not actually sitting. That's true. Let's just explain why this photo. Tell me a bit. Well, this happened every year. My mum would order or buy a huge turkey. In fact, the one in that photograph isn't very huge, but they were always very, very big, too big to fit in the fridge because in those days, fridges were... Small. They were quite, yeah. Dinky. They Mm. were, and turkeys were big. And actually, turkeys were probably bigger than they are nowadays because you had to buy the whole thing. You couldn't just buy, you know, a bit. And then in that photograph, there is a pan of peeled and cut up potatoes in water. They're ready. That's all ready for Christmas Day. That's probably at least two days before Christmas Day that that's all sitting there ready. It's all about preparation. (laughs) It's all the preparation, (laughs) isn't it? But the turkey's not covered with any paper or cling film or anything like that it just is there and there's some wellington boots there as well and oh yes in the corner on some newspaper yeah so we saw this scene very often because you'd open the door there it would be that had been going on for years and years and years i must have known it was funny Mm. and the fact that the toilet paper that's sitting on the cistern has slightly unraveled and is Mm. dangling down and actually touching what i think you do is you find the funny in the mundane because the mundane is actually hilarious, really. The mundane is the funniest. Yes, if you dissect the mundane. Because it's true. It's poignant too because my mum, I don't want to make light of this, but, you know, she is slash was borderline anorexic and, you know, really hated food, hated Mm. all the faff around food and hated cooking, really hated cooking. So we literally would sort of survive on our wits all year round 
And then, I don't know, about... Christmas, something changes. And then suddenly she'd buy this thing and 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 make the potatoes and so we'd have to live with it and it was sort of it's ironic and a bit is it partly because your your mum would put a lot of pressure on herself wouldn't she to live up to certain yes she would and so this is all part of the sort of facade and i think yeah and also what's tragic about it is i think women did women particularly in those days did they had huge expectations families did and yes it would really come to a head at christmas Mm. but most women i guess most would sort of rise to it and be quite sensible about it but my mum would really panic usually it wouldn't quite be defrosted in time and the other thing was we'd often have to take the hairdryer and you know get it on it and again I thought that was normal I thought everybody not everybody but I thought it was the tacky, you know I thought you know everyone finished off the defrosting on Christmas morning with the hairdryer but when people have read that in my book they they got oh, hilarious about the hairdryer and I think Huh? That's not that funny. Didn't you do that? Didn't you do that? <laughs> so do you think people have such high expectations of Christmas that that's why there's so much potential for everything to go wrong? Is that where it arises? Yes, I think the reason I like writing about Christmas mm. is because people are so funny about Christmas. They, they behave in funny ways and funny mm. things happen mm. precisely because of that. People ruin it by wanting to be traditional and brilliant yeah, and perfect. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, you go to somebody's house... And nobody's allowed to do what they want to do no. or relax because they've got to play. We must have fun playing yes. this board game. Yes, we must yes. have fun. <laughs> OK, well, let's dive into an almost perfect Christmas with an extract from the audiobook, starting at the very beginning, read by Nina Stibby herself. Why am I so turkey-phobic, you might wonder? Well, it's because I've seen the damage turkeys can do and the tyrannical hold they have over otherwise robust, rational people, and I've been affected... It goes back to childhood. My mother's not a foodie. She hates all foods and would even hate that I've written foods like that with an S. She'd prefer that all meals be taken in pill form and avoids cooking at all costs. And as far as I can tell, she only eats peanuts, raw carrots and the occasional plum. But once a year, every year, she becomes possessed of a deep and profound need to serve up a roast turkey. It's some kind of grim personal quest. After leaving her children to survive from day to day on sugar sandwiches and toast and blue band, suddenly, at Christmas, the turkey would appear and our mother would almost kill herself in the kitchen trying to please it, to provide the trimmings and keep it moist, only for it to roast itself dry and then be gone from our lives for the next 12 months. She's not alone. Many are afflicted in this way. Only in my mother's case, it seems so unfair. Her being not only food shy, but a rebel and a free spirit in everything else. For as long as I can remember, the idea of Christmas dinner would pop into her head in early autumn, when she was supposed to put in a Christmas meats order at the local butcher. Not fully knowing who might be with us and requiring turkey on the day, and faced with a walk into the village though, she might think, oh fuck it and just get one at Sainsbury's on December the 23rd with the main shop. Then, on December the 23rd, not wanting a fist fight over a fresh one in the supermarket, she might opt for a frozen one from Bee Jam, or later Iceland, and leave it to defrost in the downstairs toilet for not quite 48 hours. That was an almost perfect Christmas written and read by Nina Stibby. What do you think it is about the turkey? People have so many problems and they feel like if they can't cook a turkey, they've somehow failed the entire Christmas. Yeah. 
It's bizarre, isn't it's it? Strange. This bird can bring so much pain to but so many. I, the thing is, turkey's not actually that nice a thing to I eat. I do chicken. Yeah. I can't bet. Why turkey wouldn't is you? always dry. Turkey's always dry. Turkey is a substandard chicken. It's, it is. But, but yeah, it, we wheel it out. It's on a like test. the most important time of the year for some people. lots of people. As, yeah. But if you don't have it... You know, you either have to keep it very quiet or you have to make a thing of it. Say, oh, we don't have turkey. Yeah. I'm surprised your dad's choosing the turkey experience didn't put you off it because that was interesting. Oh, the Timothy. (laughs) Yeah. Right, Timothy was completely made up. Oh, what? It was a story. <gasps> oh, I love that. Oh, no. I know. You're Sorry. shattering my I made it dreams. up because I didn't grow up with my dad. My mum and dad split up and he mm. had a, a second family. But we were in touch with him a lot and it was exactly the kind of thing he'd do. He mm. was always sort of thinking it was marvellous that he went and found, you know organic lentils and yes. things like that. So, yeah, it's sort of in honour of my dad, but it wasn't a true. Sorry, Connie, I'm so sorry. I wish So, it was Timothy true. the turkey... Timothy the turkey. not even real. But Timothy but at least the turkey isn't was a welfare bird... He was. That, ..that in this fictional... I'm now told it's a fictional story... ..that your dad decided to purchase for you and your siblings yes. to have over Christmas because yes. you were all being very right on about not wanting to eat a caged animal, exactly. which is absolutely which right. Which is quite right, yes. But the story does have a very funny ending. Right. Well, let's have another listen to an almost perfect Christmas. And in this extract from the audiobook, your mother has forcefully suggested that you all go down to the pub on Christmas Eve while she prepares. At the village pub... The Christmas trip home would turn into a sort of annual stock take where we'd evaluate our current lives, in London in my case, against the ones we'd left behind. I'd see all my old colleagues, the friends I missed, the few I'd dumped, their hair, jeans and jackets, and their husbands that I might have had, and I'd note the fact that they still all had each other. I might bump into friends who'd also come home for Christmas. These friends might have brought a handsome, foreign-speaking partner back with them, or a new hairdo, or exciting anecdotes about working with Brian Eno, adapting a Truman Capote novella, or horse-riding across Argentina. And being university-educated, they might say something about the going-home-at-Christmas hell being an important human experience that we should all share, and that not taking part being tantamount to shooting a monkey bad luck, or being a loner, scary, or being a Scrooge, bad. I might meet my old best friend and her daughter allowed in for a quick lemonade before bed because it's Christmas Eve, and this child might look so exactly like her mother did at that age that I'd want to sob for all the brilliant, ridiculous times we'd had. The boys on mopeds, the clothes and makeup, discos at the working men's club, skiving off school the awful things our parents did, especially mine, the joy of making nuisance phone calls to the racists she'd accidentally babysat for, and the time we almost fell out because she was having regular full sex with my boyfriend. But I didn't mind because I wanted her as my friend more than I liked him. But it was so, so long ago, and she's all grown up now and busy and proper and barely remembers any of it. But I'm not, and I do remember. So that feeling of going home, 
mm. and revisiting your past. Oh, yeah. When perhaps you feel like you should have moved on. And I know this mm. feeling. I recently, well, I say recently, two years ago, moved back to where I grew up. Have you? Which is very weird and regressive. But that's part of the whole Christmas feeling, isn't it? Apart from the fact that I live it 24-7. It is. Do you secretly love that thing? I really love and have always loved going back to Leicester. I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking, why wouldn't you? You know, it's where you grew up. Mm. But going back at but Christmas... But lots of people don't. No, they don't. I, but I don't think that's to do with the place. It must be because a certain type of pressure that they don't enjoy. Going back at Christmas, for me, was brilliant because my siblings would all go back. We'd all sort of converge. But, yeah, going back and going into the pub that you'd lounged around in for day after day after day, to suddenly go back, you felt different. Mm. You felt sort of more worldly. Yeah. And a bit sort of exotic. Yeah. So let's move on to your next object, shall we? Yes. Assorted Christmas correspondence. So we've got yes. Christmas cards, we've got Christmas note to Father Christmas, we've got a Christmas round robin letter. Yes. Tell us a bit about the Christmas correspondence. Christmas correspondence. Well... I'm a huge fan of the Christmas letter or mm. round robin mm -hmm. and they are dying out now. I don't suppose people get you know, them anymore. It's because of Facebook, isn't it? Yeah, you, it is. you do say. Yeah, and I think it's a sad thing because we've laughed at them and sort of poked fun at them over the years and I know why, because they were very funny. Mm. But there was something so charming about them mm. and for me personally... My mum used to get them from people that had sort of snubbed her in real life and didn't really have much to do with her anymore. Yeah. And so we'd get this little window into our wider, our mother's wider, you know, family and beyond. Yeah. I found it rather nice and I think there was a, a lovely, happy upbeatness about them. People were... People, well, people's... they're very positive. Yes, that's the thing. It's sort of like Instagram or something, isn't it? You're painting this picture yes. of... Yes, of, But what I love is when you write about the perfect balance. So someone puts in a bit of good news, met Una Stubbs, bit of bad news, caught smoking on Google Earth, and then and then a sort of summation at the end. Yes. There's a sort of knack to writing the yes, round Yes, there is. And it? I think they really boomed when everybody had a, a printer at home. I was thinking about this. I was mm. thinking it must they must have really, really got going, you know, in that kind of everybody that gets a Christmas card from you has a letter in. Mm. That must have been when people could print off at home. Multiple copies. Yeah. yeah. So that must have been the early eighties or maybe the late seventies, I can't remember. But I've I've certainly seen many, many of them. I've seen some handwritten ones as well where people must have written yeah. you know, uh, written them out like that. And I think in those days, in the seventies and eighties, we still had standards that we wanted to yes, uphold, uphold, yeah. and these Christmas letters were very much of that time, and and they were funny and charming, and I loved them, and I also love, you know, sort of homemade Christmas cards oh, and yeah. letters to Father Glitter Christmas on and glue and all yeah, and you must have, done, oh, yeah. you've done your share of all oh, that, I've haven't you? The made Christmas my fair share of homemade yes, Christmas cards, yes, and decorations, yes, and, and advent crowns, yeah. And all sorts. Sure. Uh, do you feel you. sad when some of these Christmas traditions? are getting lost actually for me I really I'm going to be so sad this Christmas because it'll be the first Christmas we don't get one from my dad Aww. my late father who always wrote one and his were hilarious because he tried to be inventive 
And one year, he and his wife, this is my dad and stepmom, mm. did theirs in dialogue, in fake dialogue. Oh, and amazing. it sort of started with, oh, darling, shall we do a Christmas letter this year? We must. We've had such a busy year. And then she replies, yes, and don't forget I was ordained. And then he says, oh, yes, you were ordained into the church. How marvellous. But I'm an atheist, so that's going to be tricky. And it kind of goes on like that, and it's so cute. That's so cute. Well, let's get back to the audiobook yes. now of An Almost Perfect Christmas, written and read by my lovely guest, Nina Stibby. And in this extract, you share your gift-buying wisdom. What not to get. I see people fall into the same time and money-wasting traps year after year. I've fallen into those traps myself. But, unlike others, I shan't name names, I've learnt by these mistakes. Don't be over-generous, or mean, or give precedent-setting gifts. Just because you like a thing, it doesn't mean anyone else will. Go for suitability and proper niceness over quirk or gift kudos. Never give cigarettes or toothpaste unless the person is in prison. Crazes. Fads. Trends. Crazes make bad gifts, especially if you do your Christmas shopping early. I have wasted literally thousands of pounds on these. I bought a ton of Go-Go's, two dozen dingbats, a pair of flubes, and two years ago, or oh, crikey, was it three years ago, all the loom bands kits I could lay my hands on. And by the time I gave them... Either the fad was over, or the kid had so many of the things that she, he didn't want to see one ever again, or there was a new version, or a new thing, and it was just awkward. I'm writing this knowing that many people will never have known what most of these were, and those who did have probably forgotten. What's it like recording your own audiobook, and what's it like hearing yourself? Horrible. No. It's horrible. It couldn't have been anyone else's voice because the book is so you. It is you. You know, I agree. It's it's good because you know how to read it. But yeah. And because... you'd be annoyed if someone else was, like, intonating it no, wrong. No, but I've had two books read by prose. I had Helen Baxendale did one of them and it was brilliant. Did you enjoy it? It's and really good fun. Did you have to sort of do other takes of yourself? Like, yes. was there a producer that said, you don't sound like you're doing this enough? Yeah, I, he was Yeah, that... he was quite hard on me. He got me to read a story. I was reading it upbeat and he said, no, slow down, slow down, oh. because actually this is quite moving, even though it is in your Christmas funny book it's yeah. actually quite moving and then when I heard it I thought you know he's right because oh, it should okay. so he's the pro now you're a self-confessed gifting expert yes has the way that we've bought gifts changed yes I think it has because when I was first grown up in the sort of 80s mm. the whole thing about Christmas shopping was just getting it done and getting everyone a gift mm. and that was it and they had to be grateful yeah, and, whatever it was and if they weren't they wouldn't say anything and yeah. you never had to hear about it again it was just wrap something up hand it over done but nowadays we want to buy a gift and actually have it really liked we want to give something and get the acknowledgement yeah. back we want we the want gift that kudos sort of, that's exactly yes. right and and that's made it very, very difficult. Also, when I was a kid, there was only really Woolworths. There wasn't shops Yeah, like lots now. of variety, yeah. And what about the Powys Castle mugs? The Powys Castle mugs that actually I think my sister and I bought for my mum 
And so then, did you both, you you two actually went to Paris Cost? Yeah, we were okay. there through visiting my dad who lived near there. We bought these mugs in a twin pack. Mm. In a it, gift box. In a gift box, yeah. Mm. It was like two mugs with a sort of matching spoon type thing and a sachet nice. of hot chocolate <laughs> or something like that. And so I think we gave them to our mum and then my sister received them the following year. That's hilarious. And then she gave them to our half-sister and then... I think I got them, and they've just done the rounds ever since. You see, if you're going to re-gift, re-gift a bit outside the inner circle. No? I know, that's the thing. And also, they, they're made of china, so how have they not been broken? So it's fascinating. And really. the hot chocolate must be past its sell-by date. Yeah, <laughs> it, it might even have been like oxtail soup or something. It was just grim. <laughs> but it is horrible when you open them and you think, oh, God, I've got these again. Do, do we ever get what we want for Christmas Unless we ask for something specific. And does it matter? I haven't been given many good gifts, but I have given many. But I, you you know, see, a, the goodness of a gift is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, I think a lot of people have had this very thing that they've never had any good gifts, but they've, they've always given, given good I gifts. I always give good gifts. I do. Yeah. I'm so, occasionally I get it wrong. We're I just w- all give, give, give us, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. No take here. <laughs> oh, honestly. OK, on to your next object. Yes. What is it? It's a Christmas tree. Not an actual Christmas tree. No. I don't see a Christmas tree it's in it. It's a photograph. Right. Here it is. Oh, good Lord. There this, it is. Okay, so let me just explain this Christmas tree. It's you real. could call it a Christmas tree, or you could call it an elaborate twig with a bit of foliage it's very rude. at the top. It's very rude. It's rude, but it's honest. It's honest. It's a it's a real tree. It's it's in it's in a pot it's seen with roots. better days. Yes. You've tried with the decoration to hide the fact that there's no foliage for, like, two-thirds of this tree. Isn't it the weirdest thing? And at the top, it's got little pine cones, real ones. Yeah. They fall off and then they grow again. And they're a bit resinous. Is this the tree from the book? Yes. This is the... Actual, it's that's, true! That's a true story! <laughs> Woohoo! It's a true story. And you actually yeah. did have that conversation and thought, no, I want this one, and you bought yes. this one and you thought, I'm going to And I thought it, it would die... You know, oh, I thought wow, it would have one Christmas I'm so happy. and then it would die. Kind of There's r- no disguising the fact that there is no greenery. But the top for bit is two metres. Yeah, but the top bit. And yeah, you're right, the top does make up. I for mean, it, but that's what You can't tell perhaps. you can't tell from that photograph. I should have brought it in. It's a tall tree. Though. It's, it's very, that's five that's six foot high now. Wow. Okay. And that was two foot high when I bought it. So it really has put on some timber, yeah. but only upwards. Right, well let's hear about your tree buying experience yeah. uh, in another extract from an almost perfect Christmas written and read by Nina Stibby. And here you've walked into Candy's florist and taken pity on the aforementioned lopsided little fir Christmas tree that's in the photo in front of me. It looked half dead, but I examined it anyway, out of politeness. Candy stood at the flower-arranging counter, wrapping poinsettias in tinted cellophane and green ribbon. It's not a good specimen, he said, and suggested I try the out-of-town garden centre, or home base, or Sainsbury's, or the pannier market. I realised I didn't want to go anywhere else. I wanted to go home and unpack our belongings. This one should beef up, though, with a bit of TLC, I said, shouldn't it? No, it won't beef up. It should never have tried to make that size, said Candy. It's been badly handled as a sapling, 
and should have been thinned out of the plantation, like a radish, to help the healthier seedlings. Now it's just a snag. A snag? Yeah, said Candy. It's traumatised. Probably been like that for years, but it's on its last legs now. It might freak out if you take it indoors and fuck about with it. What's a snag? A standing dead or dying tree. Inactive equilibrium. I examined it again. I imagined it covered in baubles, etc. Didn't look that bad to me. Candy galloped her fingers on the desk and chewed a biro. It had a good angel-worthy top, but then nothing much in the middle, and most of the important lower branches were good for nothing, bald and gnarly, like broken fingers. You won't want it, it's not up to the job, Candy said, looking up from her bouquet wrapping jobs. She was the wrong kind of person to disagree with. She had the strong opinions of someone with qualifications and experience. There was a framed certificate on the wall behind her. I don't look at it. She was the sort to notice and make something of it or launch into a certificate-based anecdote. I knew it was hers anyway, by her confident use of jargon. So where is that tree at this moment in time? As we speak, that tree is outside my house in the garden. It's probably fallen over in the wind. Oh. Because that thing is top-heavy, so it yes, falls. Yes, it is, because that's where all the, the branchy, greeny, the evergreeny bits the are. The needles. The needles, that's, that's the word leaves. I'm looking for. It is I a real see. Christmas tree. Can we just say this? It is a genuine... Yeah, I can see that. It's not... And it does look like a real Christmas tree for the top one-third. Yeah. You said that you start preparing for Christmas early. How yes. early? Well, I do my shopping early... And I... January sales. <laughs> Some, yeah. And there's the re-gifting, of course. Oh, yeah. And I've got loads of siblings and, and their offspring, and so I start my shopping very early, and I decorate... Well, me and the kids decorate very early. Nowadays, I leave things up. The thing we most leave up is the lights... Yeah. Oh, yeah, because actually, so we nice. don't take our fairy lights down either. No, they're no. always up. We've got some chilli peppers that Vic gave me and they're always up. Right. Oh, so yeah. is Vic, Vic, your sister, is yeah. she your Christmas partner in crime? Yeah, she's the most Christmassy person on earth. Yes. She has a quote from Dickens about Christmas pudding yeah. up in her kitchen all year yeah, round, she does. doesn't she? She's very Christmassy and we do shopping together in Leicester. If you're not re-gifting Paris. If I'm not, smokes. yes, if we're not well, re-gifting. On, on the re-gifting front, mm. you see, I think re-gifting's fine if it's going to someone that would like it. It's true, but I think... From an eco point of view. Yes, mm. re-gifting is very, <laughs> very ethical, Connie. Don't yes. worry, you carry on doing the yes. re-gifting. I've got your Christmas um, present here. Good. I'm just going to hand it straight back to you. you. Uh, Right, (laughs) on to your next object. But what is it? Is it Alan? I think it is, yes. Here he is. Alan Titchmarsh, Angel. Oh, my gosh, that really does look like Alan Titchmarsh with dreadlocks. Yes, Alan Titchmarsh. No, it's not dreadlocks. It's just slightly he's not had a haircut for a while. Okay. It's Alan Titchmarsh. It's... Made out of a toilet roll? Yes. It's a Christmas decoration that was made by one of my children, Eva, and it's so adorable. It's, so it's, a, it it's the adorable. angel Gabriel, and he's basically a toilet roll, and he's got lovely wings, mm-hmm. and he's got a lovely tinsely halo. Mm. Pipe cleaner. But, yeah, pipe cleaner, glittery. What's his head made out of? Is that an egg? No, his head Ping is a round ball. ball that... 
is usually would be sort of covered over with some sort of fabric. For a proper crafter would oh, hide the polystyrene, but my daughter was only about seven when she made it. I love it. So it's still just polystyrene. But she's given him a face and hair with wool and just it's uncanny. He just looks exactly like Alan Titchmarsh. Does he really is it me? Like, no, I'm I'm with you on that. The reason he's one of my items that I wanted to show you was because I do love the homemade, grotty, crappy... No, but that's part <laughs> of the charm, I think. Yeah. So we have a final extract from your audiobook. That's sad um, that it's the final extract. Um, but the book is fantastic, as I've already said. An almost perfect Christmas. And you talk about the elephant in the room in this extract, which is the Christmas pudding. Every year, in early December, I send a Christmas pudding to my old friend Marie, who lives in France. I send it because Marie can't get it in the shops over there and apparently loves it. This year, I found myself thinking I might switch to something else instead, say, a Christmassy book, the one you're listening to now. But I wondered about the etiquette of suddenly, without warning, breaking a Christmas tradition in this way. I asked a well-behaved friend... Can I just stop sending Marie's Christmas pudding, or should I warn her? First, the friend said, Can't you send the pudding and the book? And I said, Of course I couldn't, because that would be over-generous. And over-generosity is worse than meanness at Christmas and can be interpreted as needy or passive-aggressive. The friend conceded this, but then asked why I would send an edible gift to someone who lived in the food capital of the world especially a Sainsbury's Basics microwavable Christmas pudding. She really likes it, I said, and it's taste the difference. How do you know she likes it? She says so. Of course she does, she's being polite, said my friend. She probably dies laughing at it every year. Until that moment, I'd been certain that Marie really loved Christmas pudding, and so did her partner and cat. I'd thought of myself as the saviour of their Christmas, now I had visions of them all laughing and joking about it, in French. And thinking about it, I couldn't remember which had come first, her saying how much she liked Christmas pudding, or my sending it. I suddenly doubted myself, and feeling mortified about the 15 or so puddings I've sent, emailed her. Dearest Marie, I hope you won't be disappointed, but I'm considering not sending you a Christmas pudding this year. I might send you a book instead, because A, I think you'll love the book, and B, I suddenly wonder if you actually like Christmas pudding. It's just not Christmas without, is a pretty common phrase, wouldn't you say? There's these iconic parts of Christmas, the Christmas pudding being one of these iconic parts of Christmas, Robin, Snow, Father Christmas. Mm. Do you feel that we hang on to traditions that we don't even like? Yes, I think we, we have to, really. With Christmas pudding, it's a funny thing because actually it's so cute look at this picture i've got it's so oh, cute that is a cute christmas pudding yeah picture. and and the christmas... holly is bigger than the pudding i know that's but... my mum getting it a bit wrong but if it was nice mm. we'd eat it wouldn't we but we never ever well, do you hit on it with the turkey if it was nice we'd eat it apart yeah. from when yeah. we have to because yeah. we're made to it but even with turkey you might say there's not a production line for it and they are actually living beasts and and yeah. actually they're big and awkward. But the Christmas pudding is just a pudding. Mm. And, you know, I've seen people who say they love it. 
I've seen them smearing it round a dish mm. to yeah, try and get it, rid of it. Pretend it's dissipated mm. and gone, but yeah. really we can see it's we there. can see it's, it's just, under the spoon. Yeah, totally, but with any other know. pudding, they'd be saying, you know, is there any more? Yeah, there, um, it would be in their belly. I suppose it would. Yes, yeah, but it's we that it's it's kind of medieval food, isn't it? We don't eat suet and no. that amount of fruit anymore. No, we don't. I love the cream element or the custard or the... Agree. Yeah, so yes. that's what I do. I'll take a tiny yeah. portion of the Christmas pudding a bit of and dream, use it as dream an excuse. Topping. <laughs> yeah, really, the Christmas pudding is the accompaniment to my cream. Yeah, which is the, the only way to cream. have it. And then you can mm. just leave that spoonful of pudding. Yeah. What I used to do when I was a kid, because you used to have money in it, you see. Oh, yes. Do you remember the that? The coins, yeah. I think when I was very first aware of it, it was actual sixpences. That's how oh, old really? I am. Wow. It was actual sixpences. And nobody wrapped them up in foil. They just stuck them in. But they're so germy coins. Well, oh, we, no, mind that you, was at that, that temperature, was... it doesn't matter. In, in the olden days, everything, no, was, everything germy. was fine. And we, yeah. we were healthier for it. Yes, quite but, right. So they'd stick these sixpences in, so you'd have a huge piece, because the bigger the piece, the more the money. Yeah. So that's how they flogged it. You're trying to profit out of it. Exactly. But now there's no incentive. No incentive. So, so you have a tiny bit and just try and get pudding kudos. Yeah. But I, what I used to do, and I, because I had all these siblings and we were all crowded around this little table, I'd say... Look at that robin, and they everyone look out the window, you and I just put a my version. Yeah, I love I that. I pop my pudding in my brother or sister's plate. Very cunning. Tradition does live on in these ways that we do want to recreate the things that we remember enjoying because Christmas mm. is a, on the whole a great time. It is, and for me, I remember my mum striving so hard for certain things. Oh, that's so Bless sweet. her, and she still does. And what really makes me laugh is she still hates food and cooking. Yeah. But some of my siblings will take all their children, you know, because we must see Mum yes. at Christmas, not realising that actually they're making her have a really stressful time. Oh. It'd be much better to but go on Boxing Day. She when loves to see the children. So even... There, does that counterbalance it, perhaps? Maybe not. Yeah. Well, this yeah. brings us actually on nicely to your final object, because yeah, which is... It is my mother. Yeah, She is my mother, and she's not here with us, but she's here in spirit. She's here in the photo. Yes, here she is, and uh, looking gorgeous. And she... Shaped your Christmases, basically, she did, for and the family. She was always hilarious at Christmas because she was this crazy sort of hippie... Mm. And I'm going to say... say sort of yeah, Chaotic. You described it as chaotic. She was chaotic she was a menace and everyone thought she was terrible. She's a bit of a drinker yeah. and she always did terrible things <laughs> and she was always inappropriate and naughty. But Christmas kind of tamed her. Right. And so she'd suddenly... And played to her strengths, maybe, because you want someone no, a bit No, no, don't try and be nice. No, OK. She, it didn't play to her strengths, it played to her weaknesses. <laughs> no, but it's nice having a chaotic, <laughs> mad person around at Christmas. It, no, it's not, because... what? Well, because <laughs> okay. It's nice to have chaotic people around you if they don't mind the chaos. But if they're chaotic and they're going, this turkey's not Play done. this board game, yes. you will have fun. Yes, and this arrange... fun. We've got to go and get some holly with berries on it. Where the hell are we going to find any scramble up that railway, railway embankment yeah. and get it i you know you're going to get scratched to hell but get it mm. <laughs> so she what she was trying to do was she was trying to recreate her christmases with a christmas expert my grandmother was a christmas expert loved it very posh mm. super efficient stylish very middle class lots of copper pans with super buried Holly and homemade that. everything mm. and homemade pastries and oh. and everything was perfect 
And she and my mother didn't get on terribly well, but just like you do and just like I do, she, my mother, wanted to recreate what her mother had created. Yeah. But she fluffed it every year and Aww. and that was lovely in its own way, but I can't say it was the most relaxing, wonderful thing. Christmas is never relaxing. Um, it's <laughs> after Christmas, isn't it, in that window between Christmas and New Year, that's when we start relaxing. Well, I think if we all started having tortilla chips and an assortment of, you know, dips and things mm. and, you know, a can of pale ale or something, it'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Has Christmas changed for you now then and your family in Cornwall? Yes, it is not the same as it was because I am actually much more relaxed. For for many years, we used to have to go skiing to escape it. And we used to have to blow all our holiday budget (laughs) on this one week. And my partner loved it because he's good at skiing and snowboarding. But for me, it was always a challenge. Right. But it did mean you didn't do any shopping or cooking. Perfect. And, and so you'd get away from yeah, all of this. So that was that was quite nice. Good. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been lovely. I've loved it. I could talk forever to you. Thank but just you. quickly. Well let's well let's keep talking. We'll just turn the mics <laughs> off and we can keep going. But just quickly though, what's next for you? Are we gonna see more novels? Yes, I'm writing another novel for Penguin as we speak. Yay, I'm jotting hurrah. notes now for Ooh, it. Yeah. Interesting. And that should come out I think at the end of twenty eighteen. So this podcast will be in your novel. Yes. Yeah. Good. Me and Connie. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Oh, well, look, that's very exciting. We look forward to that novel Thank coming you. out. And have a fantastic Christmas. I will. And you have a fantastic Christmas. Thanks. And I hope the chicken is really moist. Yes, so do I. <laughs> uh, massive thanks. And thanks goodbye. for having me. Bye bye. The Ministry of Upmost Happiness, Arundhati Roy. An intimate author read recording of the richly moving new novel the first since the author's Booker Prize-winning, internationally celebrated debut, The God of Small Things. The Ministry of Utmost Happiness was longlisted for 2017's Man Booker Prize and takes us deep into the lives of its gloriously rendered characters, each of them in search of a place of safety, in search of meaning and of love. She lived in the graveyard like a tree. At dawn she saw the crows off and welcomed the bats home. At dusk, she did the opposite. Between shifts, she conferred with the ghosts of vultures that loomed in her high branches. She felt the gentle grip of their talons like an ache in an amputated limb. She gathered they weren't altogether unhappy at having excused themselves and exited from the story. When she first moved in, she endured months of casual cruelty like a tree would without flinching. She didn't turn to see which small boy had thrown a stone at her, didn't crane her neck to read the insults scratched into her bark. When people called her names, clown without a circus, queen without a palace, she let the hurt blow through her branches like a breeze and used the music of her rustling leaves as balm to ease the pain. It was only after Ziauddin, the blind imam who had once led the prayers in the Fatehpuri Masjid, befriended her and began to visit her, that the neighbourhood decided it was time to leave her in peace. Long ago, a man who knew English told her that her name, written backwards in English, spelled Majnu. In the English version of the story of Leila and Majnu, he said... Majnu was called Romeo, 
and Leila with Juliet. She found that hilarious. You mean I've made a khichdi of their story, she asked. What will they do when they find that Leila may actually be Majnu and Romi was really Julie? Humane and sensuous, beautifully narrated by the author herself, this extraordinary audiobook demonstrates the miracle of Arundhati Roy's storytelling gifts. Available now to download and own from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.